Bushnell is, of course, the president of the FCCE. And this is a podcast where we take a look at the compliance profession in a wide-ranging approach. In this episode, we tackle three topics. The first is the penalty assessed by the NCAA for Notre Dame in their self-disclosure of utilizing two ineligible football players in a couple of seasons, I think uh, 2012 and 2013. We then take a, uh, I advocate that employees should not put stupid stuff in emails, and we discuss Fox, I'd like to thank you very much for listening to this episode of Unfair and Unbalanced. You have been thinking about a recent event that happened to the Notre Dame football team. And that event was Notre Dame was sanctioned to the point where they uh, were uh, instructed by the uh, NCAA to forfeit two years of wins, uh, two seasons worth of wins for using ineligible players. why don't you kind of lay out, as you understand it, what happened and see where we might go with this. So um, I'm driving to work, and I'm listening to Mike and Mike in the morning. And one of these, it doesn't matter anybody understands who these guys are, but one of them's a, a former Notre Dame football player, and his son played uh, for Notre Dame. He's a Notre Dame homer. The other guy, the other Mike's been working with him for years, kind of a homer for Mike. And uh, they were saying this thing happened in Notre Dame. They they had a problem. They found the problem. They fixed the problem. Uh, they undid the grades. They, the, they found out the kids cheated on some uh, uh, papers and tests. They, 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 they took back the grades that they stole, essentially. Um, they suspended the players immediately. Uh, I believe they dismissed the uh, some person who was helping the kids uh, uh, write the papers or whatever. This is the usual story. And uh, turned themselves into the NCAA, and the NCAA says, thank you very much. And by the way, we're going to na- negate all of the games from the record books for two years, one of which is one of their best years ever. Finished second in the country, I believe. And the, and the point that the Mike and Mike were making is this is horrible. They did exactly what they were asking, and they got punished terribly. I was outraged. I came into work. I started to write my article on how unfair this is. Here it is. We're getting people to implement compliance and ethics programs, have discipline, investigate, do the whole thing, and, and, and take care of the problem yourself, and, and they're being punished. Well, before I wrote, I had to read some more. I happened to read what the NCAA said. And the NCAA basically said, we're sorry, but they played people who were ineligible or they were, they were on the bench, they were on the field, they, were, they, they could have gone into the game, they did go into the game, who knows, uh, I don't know. But they, they, um, they said, because you stole those games with ineligible people, you have to give the games back. And I kind of thought about it, and I thought, well, you know, the university knew they should give the grades back. Kids stole the grades. The university said, you can't have those grades. You stole those grades, so they changed the grades. 
because they stole the grades. Now, they had a bunch of wins that year. Nobody's ever going to know how much these kids had a, 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 an impact on that. There's just no way to ever figure that out. You played ineligible players, the NCAA said, and uh, you stole the games, and we've got to get back to games. And I thought, how is this different from stealing the grades? And I couldn't. I don't. I don't remember what I did. I might have written this up, but I, I couldn't. You wrote, I couldn't fault the. Couldn't decide. Say that again, Tom. You wrote. You wrote it that you couldn't decide. Yeah. You were of two. Well, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I, I, I'm. I'm. I'm really stuck. I just. I think essentially the short answer is the NCAA said thank you very much, but you didn't have adequate punishment. Where are you at on this? Help me so, out here. Yeah, full disclosure, uh, whoever plays Notre Dame each week is one of my favorite teams. So, uh, <laughs> I uh, went to three universities that Notre Dame has uh, kicked for 40 or 50 years, so I'm not a big Notre Dame fan. So you have to uh, – I've gone around and around on this one, and part of me says I can't say anything that would uh, put Notre Dame in a positive light. But um, – you have suggested that I have to put my prejudices aside and evaluate this as a professional. So, um, the, uh, but I do have to evaluate this as a lawyer, Roy, and a lawyer's analysis would be, or my lawyer's analysis, I would say, is that if uh, they violated um, NCA rules and if the punishment specifies that uh, games will be forfeited where ineligible players played, then uh, if that appears um, to be a um, severe penalty, so be it. Um, I don't know if the NCAA has discretion on this. Um, you know, the, uh, the NCAA enforcement um, organization, I think, is pretty widely viewed as ineffective and... Um, uh, inconsistent. So if if uh, part of this was they were trying to make a statement that they were going to punish a major university, um, they certainly made that statement. But if the precedent would show this was done, on a, uh, this punishment was levied on a, on a regular basis, uh, yeah, it's severe, but, uh, you know, you broke broke the rules, and that's the sanction against you. On the other hand, if there is room in the regulations for discretion, uh, if you have a situation where uh, a company uh, here, a university, uh, detects a violation, um, then moves to remediate that violation, moves to disclose to the appropriate regulatory authorities uh, that violation, and then puts systems, policies, and procedures in place to prevent and or detect it going forward, um, you know, I think that should be considered too. So uh, what I don't know is the players have not been identified um, for, I guess, privacy reasons. So we don't know who they were. We don't know uh, whether they were on the team, whether they played, what the situation was. Um, the newspaper accounts I've read, I have not read any of the underlying uh, source documents, but the newspaper accounts uh, said that Notre Dame, uh, the head coach, knew nothing about this. It was a student manager who was writing papers for two students to keep them eligible. Uh, 
the coaching staff didn't know about it. Uh, the athletic director didn't know about it. Um, you might ask why there were not uh, detection procedures in place that would have picked this up earlier. Uh, certainly when grades are given out, you would know around that time if somebody's grades bumped up. But um, I don't think I really have an understanding, a good enough understanding of the facts and the law to really uh, give an opinion one way or the other. But if there was discretion available to the NCAA in the sentence, uh, then this would appear to be a very harsh sentence. If this was, I, I think that's I, that's a great point, Tom. Is there, and this is what the U.S. Sentencing Commission essentially. It did. They said there's a gradation of penalty based on your effort. The NCAA is not adopting that philosophy based on the facts that you just outlined. We don't know the answers to necessarily, but they're all the right questions. Who knew what, when, and how many players, and what impact did they likely have, and how hard did this school try to find this problem? Did they find it? Did they fix it? Did they bring it to our attention? Was there a disclosure? I mean, they can't, you can't score much higher than, than uh, Notre Dame did on the old credibility uh, uh, meter of, of compliance and ethics. You just can't do much better than they did, except for a bigger sanction on yourself. Like they said, let's vacate two years of our scores. Obviously, Notre Dame thinks that's too much. So you're right. This is what the NCAA should build into their system. Uh, some sort of, whether it's arbitrary or specific as possible, here's the range of penalties for for each of the infractions from kind of tiny to very big for flagrant stuff. So in this case, you know, the question I would have is if, if they had a school play with ineligible players, a couple of them might be a similar story, but they didn't find it. They didn't fix it. Somebody else found it and the NCAA had to decide. And they gave that school the same penalty, two years of pulling their, their, their uh, records out of the books, then that's a crime. There's n absolutely no recognition of people doing the things the way we all want them to do. So I guess the real question here, say, is would be, I would have for the NCAA, would you do this same thing for a school that did the same thing, but, but didn't, that maybe even found it and refused to fix it. Somebody else reported them and it, it, it wasn't handled the right way at all. And if, if so, if they would treat them both the same way, then I say the NCAA, your system is broken. You are not motivating people to prevent, find, and fix problems. As a matter of fact, you're telling people whether we find it or you find it, you're going to get the same penalty. Who the heck would bother finding and fixing problems? So I guess uh, we're just going to have to wait and see um, perhaps when more comes out. Uh, uh, either Yeah, there'll be an appeal. There's an appeal, I, I right. believe. I don't think that's been decided yet. So, Roy, I wanted to end up our time uh, kind of throwing out a question around a phrase I've heard you use called forced transparency. Oh, yeah. But that uh, that's uh, from 2016. I would throw in the Panama Papers. I would throw in the hacking around the election. I would throw around uh, misinformation, disinformation, fake news. 
But uh, one thing that I've observed for corporations is hyper-transparency. So what does all this mean to you, and where do you think compliance fits into this? So um, it's just a general observation. I, I have a you know 65,000-foot view of planet Earth. <laughs> is that there's this hue and cry for uh, transparency, and there's some extremists who want every bit and bite on the hard drive or in the files of any company or government to be publicly available. And uh, I think that's obviously, well, not obviously, but I believe that's ex extreme and uh, probably not necessary and got a lot of problems. And you have people who uh, maybe are on, on, the, on the other side, but for years, people like Transparency International and others have been trying to get governments and companies to disclose more about who they are and what they are and what they do and how they do it. And the world is just creaking along with little improvements every year or 10 years to this transparency thing. Um, you know, a thousand years ago, the amount of transparency that came out of governments was not much. Uh, it's, it's, there's some countries where there's a lot more transparency now. But it's not, it's not satisfied the extremists. Well, uh, enter hackers um, that have uh, taken out uh, certain companies. Uh, one I don't think you mentioned would be Sony, and basically taken everything off their hard drive and put it in the public domain. Um, can you imagine being a law firm and whatever, 20 years of your client's information being dumped into the street? Uh, well, I'm thinking about and by the way, I'm against, I'm against it. I'm, hacking is bad. Uh, privacy rights are important. Uh, some transparency is good. Uh, total transparency uh, in the case of the Panama Papers meant that people's private information was publicly uh, uh, made available. That's wrong. Okay, so, but... I, I don't, I'm not into right or wrong right at the moment. What I'm into is what is the impact of, of Sony, Panama Papers, and, the, and the, the political hacking mean to the world? The whole world, well, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people around the world, within the next week, deleted a sentence in an email that they otherwise would have sent if Sony, Panama Papers, and the political hacking didn't occur, whole emails probably weren't sent. Whole documents were probably not created by the thousands, tens of thousands. And one positive spin, whether I'm not saying that's right or wrong or good or bad or interesting or not interesting. All I'm saying is People always run lying, cheating, and stealing through a filter or two. One filter is, will I get caught? Prior to the hacking, concern about getting caught was probably, let's say, a three. 
After the hacking, whether it was real or not, some people like bounced right up to a nine. I'm not going to do that bad thing now because what if the, 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 the files of an entire system are compromised and dumped into the public? My odds of getting caught went up. Everybody in the world felt like their odds of getting caught cheating, lying, cheating, stealing, went up, whether it was 1% or 10% or 50% or 100%, it changed. And every hack from here on out of a governmental agency or a political office or a, a law firm or a, a company of any kind is going to cause that percentage to go up. People will take fewer risks because there are thoughts that they can hide in a computer or their emails were safe or their documents were safe is being eroded. And I just don't think people are noticing. They talk about the right or wrong and Panama and hackers are terrible and all the information should be disclosed so the hackers are all good. I don't care to get in that conversation. They're missing the point. The world's never going to be the same, and some good things are probably going to come from it. It's, uh, I hate to say that because I don't want to imply I'm for it. I'm not for it. Nobody should hack anybody, and privacy is an important law. So the first thing I would observe, Roy, is something that I routinely put on training for, which is, don't say stupid things in emails. And I'm a huge believer in that because uh, as a recovering trial lawyer, I had to defend lots of corporations where people put incredibly stupid stuff in emails. Um, so I think in large part that if people don't put stupid stuff in emails, they'll alleviate a big part of the problem. But perhaps that view is is more naive after the we've seen the effects of um, the alleged Russian hacking scandal of uh, the Democratic Party um, over the past uh, presidential election cycle, and that if um, there will be, there has been a change, there will be a change, and there will be a response, and there will be a response that business can work with. And one of that response is, heaven forbid we go back to pen and paper, you know, maybe that's a response, but maybe there are technological responses. But um, the, the salacious things we read in the Sony emails, the hypocritical or inane things we read in the hacks of John Podesta's emails, my answer to that is don't put that kind of stuff in emails. <laughs> you know, if, if you yeah. want to talk about your sex life, don't put it in an email. If you want to say that somebody is a, uh, you know, you name the word, don't put it in an email. It doesn't mean you can't think about, think of them that way or that you can't have that conversation with somebody. But once you com commit something to paper, it is in the world and yeah. it's going to get out. And so when, you know, the president of Sony says, well, I was embarrassed that uh, part of, you know, stories about my sex life got it. Well, honey, don't put it in an email to a friend. <laughs> Uh, so as you might say, I don't have a lot of sympathy for some of those. The, there are, I think, more troubling questions about misinformation and disinformation. 
But I'm going to flip back to what that guy who is the president of the German Manufacturers Association said. Compliance is the answer. Part of compliance is transparency. And the compliance part is we have a process which is dedicated to preventing illegal and unethical conduct. If it occurs, we detect it. And if we detect it, we remediate it or we fix it. And when you can show that to a representative of the press, a representative of the public or of uh, our government, I think that's the response as a corporation. So, I mean, I would tie it back to uh, compliance and compliance is the key and compliance is the answer. And it ties back into many of the concepts we've talked about uh, so far in this podcast. But, uh, you know, putting stupid stuff in emails, don't do it. Yeah. You know what? You make you make me think of something really interesting. Uh, I, I've been doing this for uh, 20 years, and I can't believe I did anything for 20 years. I, I, I got ADD and all kinds of reasons why I can't believe I'm kind of in the same place for, for this long. But it'll make it interesting 20 years from now. I'm going to listen to the Bob and... Sam podcast because Tom and Roy won't be doing them anymore and they're going to be discussing some stuff that is completely unrelated or maybe they listen to this one 20 years from now which would be 36 holy crikey man 2036 we're going to be sitting in our rocking chairs listening to somebody discuss a 20 year old podcast about the future and the current events and, and, and they're going to say stuff. I'll bet you that I can't believe those guys had to deal with that back in the day because it's very possible 20 years from now that, uh, people will do a lot better job of saying and doing the right thing. And, and, uh, certainly there may be a greater acceptance and support of compliance at the C-suite and board level. And, uh, I, I really wonder if people listening to this 20 years from now would, would say, I, I can't believe those guys were worried about that crud. We don't have those problems. Um, probably have a whole new set of concerns. But uh, I have a hunch that uh, I got to tell you, when I was a compliance officer 20 years ago, I mean, there wasn't very many in the whole country and and not full-fledged compliance. There's all kinds of people claim they were in compliance because they were in risk or they were in compliance because they were in ethics or they were in compliance because they were in law. But a fully functioning seven-element compliance program, there wasn't too many. And... Uh, we literally went to conferences with our hands over our badges on occasion. We took them off because there are enforcement folks there. We didn't want to draw attention. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it, it, it was just a very unnerving time. Everybody was concerned about getting investigated and, and drawing attention to themselves and whatever. And, uh, now we'd laugh about it. Well, what are they going to be laughing about 20 years from now? Probably all the stuff we're talking about, <laughs> although we're really serious and we really mean it and we're really concerned. Uh, I wonder how much of this would be just gone shortly. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Unfair and Unbalanced, a podcast with Roy Snell and Tom Fox. 
where we take a look at the compliance profession. I have two requests of you. The first is if you're listening to this podcast on iTunes, if you could rate this podcast, I would greatly appreciate it. It would help our rankings. The second thing is, Roy and I would love to hear from you. If you have any questions you'd like us to explore uh, in a mailbag episode, please email them to me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com or Roy Snell at roy.snell at scce.org. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Unfair and Unbalanced. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.